Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. If you flip over the page, our second reading comes from Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Our third reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 19, and that can be found on page 800 of your church Bibles. Matthew 19, starting at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, What God has joined together, let no one separate. Brothers and sisters, uh, good morning. Pete Stedman, Senior Minister here. If you could leave open uh, Genesis 1 and 2. That will be the passages we're going to be uh, spending most of our time in today. Uh, Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, as we, your people, come to sit under your word, Will you make us filled with grace as you are? And will you fill us with conviction as you are? For Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, uh, on Monday of this week, I had lunch with a mate of mine uh, who happens to be a minister in the inner west of our city. Uh, he was telling me the story that he'd heard the week before uh, that his five year old was having with next door's five-year-old 
through the fence. It went like this. Who are you going to marry when you grow up? I don't know. Who are you going to marry? Maybe someone from school. Yeah, maybe, but they have to be older. Yeah, we're too young. And if you're a girl, you have to marry a boy. Silence. No, you don't. A boy can marry a boy. No, they can't. You can only marry someone who's not like you. That's not what my mum says. Okay, you go ask your mum. I'll ask mine and I'll meet you back here. And Dad, my friend the minister, was sitting there thinking, yes, go and ask your mother. (laughs) Now, that is a true story. Happened two weeks ago. But you know what? That is a story that just would not have happened ten years ago. But here it is. And what sits behind that story, what sits behind those families, what sits behind those two little children are two very different visions or versions of marriage on what it is, on what it's for. One view, very recent. One view, much more historical. Today what we're going to do is try to dive beneath the surface of each of these positions, perspectives, to try to understand what are the assumptions going on behind them. Now if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember how we wrestled with how Jesus would have his people treat and speak to people with whom both he and we would fundamentally disagree. If you were here, you'll remember it. Here's what we saw. We saw that Jesus would always have us protect from bullying those with whom we disagree. We saw that Jesus showed us that we should have deep compassion with those whom we speak to with whom we disagree. But we also saw, didn't we, that deep compassion for a person never means that we need to approve of what the Bible clearly sees as sin. We saw last week that actually real love demands much more from us than that. Today, we move to the slightly more complex task of thinking about what is marriage. We're going to consider the differing views of marriage before us in our culture at the moment. And then I'm going to finish by actually making some comments on culture and how we're to think about that. So let's start by thinking about what is marriage. Now, perhaps the first question that we need to think about is this. And it doesn't matter if you're here, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, can I say, brilliant to have you with us. Great to have you hearing and thinking about this alongside of us because we all are in our community at this time. But here's the first question that we all have to wrestle with, and it's this. Is there a purpose for human sexuality? We're thinking about, is there a purpose for human sexuality? That is, is sexual behaviour, sexual identity, something that God has blessed people with for a purpose? Or is it purposeless? There's a fluidity to the goals and purposes of sexuality. That's worth thinking through. Now, for Christians, the starting point on any particular topic has always been, well, what does God's word say to us? So today, that's where we're going to start, of course. And so the question before us is this, as we turn to God's Word. Here's the question. What is the Bible's vision for the flourishing of sexually intimate human relationships? That's the question. What's the Bible's vision uh, for the flourishing of sexually intimate human relationships? Or to put it another way, what is marriage in the Bible and what is it for? You know, the very first two references in all the Bible in regard to sexuality and marriage 
we find in the first two chapters, and there they make really clear to us what the goal and purpose of sexual intimacy is from God's perspective. And it's twofold. Here's what they are. Sexual intimate, sexually intimate flourishing human relationships are for, number one, the creation of children. I'll show you that in a sec. And number two, the union of compliments. The union of compliments. So let's start with the first, the creation of children. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Please have that open in front. Here's what we read. We read how God has made mankind in his image and then he has made mankind to rule over all the creatures of the world. We then read in verse 27, don't we, that humanity is made in the image of God and that to be in the image of God is to be both male and female. So we read, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What do we see? In the beginning, according to God's design of purpose, heterosexual differentiation was stitched into creation by God in the beginning. Now, you'll hear different views on this, but this is what the Bible says in the first chapter. In fact, humanity actually stands in the image of God as it is male and female. Look at verse 28. We read, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You know, whenever the Bible speaks about flourishing sexually intimate relationships, it always puts before us what is God's vision for that. God's purposes for how people will flourish in his creation. Just to be clear, not just Christians. All people. This is Genesis 1, after all. And please note that the first part of the vision that God puts before us is that marriage is the place where children are born, nurtured, and raised to be the next generation of people who will rule upon this earth. It is the way that God has instituted generations. You know this because you have parents and grandparents. We're all a part of it. Now, side comment here. This is not to say, this is not to say that marriages that are childless, either through age, illness, opportunity or some other circumstance, are not real or full marriages. No, far from it. However, those marriages are just not marriages that have been able to fulfill one of the created purposes for marriage. And the deep grief that almost every involuntary childless couple feels is a testimony to that. But as Patricia Werrikoon reminded us so helpfully on Tuesday night, remember, a same-sex couple cannot have children. They can't produce a third person from their relationship that is from both of them, who is a part of both of them. That is, from the outset, a same-sex relationship does not withhold the potential within it for the first of God's two purposes that he has set out for marriage, which is uh, the the nurturing and raising and and begetting of children. Now, I want to preempt what you're thinking. You're probably sitting there thinking, wow, Pete, you are making a very strong link between sexual intimacy and children. Sexual intimacy does not have to be about children. I want to say you're absolutely right. You're right, it doesn't. But you also need to know that that is a very modern way of thinking. You see, for almost all of history, the most powerful thing that sex was about, as people thought about it, was not that it gave pleasure, 
or bonded people together, as important as they were. It was the fact uh, that it brought forth new children into the world. But today, there is essentially a schism in our minds between the idea of sexual, sexual intimacy on the one hand and children on the other. It's like in our minds, they're sort of different categories. Let, let me give you an example. Uh, this is the cover of a magazine I found online. It is not remarkable. Just one I found. I could have chosen thousands. These are the magazines that people devour at supermarket after supermarket after supermarket. I want you to just focus on and notice the messages being told to us here about sexual intimacy. There's six stories on the front. The three most prominent are all about sexual intimacy or sexuality. There are 60 sex tips, badass moves involving a naughty twist you'll both love. It's helpful, isn't it? That's great. Number two, look leaner naked. Number three, orgasm virgins. Notice that these three stories are all divorced from the idea of procreation or children. Not quite. There's one more story here. Perhaps you didn't notice it. I'll put it up. There actually is a story here that links sexual intimacy and procreation. Two things that mess with your birth control. Notice what's going on here. The only story that links procreation and sexual intimacy on this magazine is a story about how procreation gets in the way of sexual intimacy. How on earth has this happened? How has this radical shift in our culture's thinking around sexual intimacy and children occurred? The answer is also on the cover. 70 years ago, we created an illusion which severs this link in the modern mind and it was the invention of successful contraceptive technologies. So we now live like sex is not for procreation. Oh, of course, it can be if you want, but it doesn't have to be. You've just got to know that almost all of human history thinks we're nuts for thinking like this. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against contraception. I'm a Protestant. It's a great gift. All right? We all know that. This is helpful technology. But can you start to see the impact that it has had and the cultural shift it has begun, which has washed through Western culture over 70 years? It is not just Christians who see this. Secular historians see this as well. And it has now led to almost a divorce in our minds between sexual intimacy on the one hand and procreation or children on the other. But please know this. That divorce does not exist in God's mind. So in God's vision for the flourishing of sexually intimate human relationships for marriage, one of the key goals, one of the key purposes for those relationships is the creation of children. But there's another, and we see this one in those beautiful verses in Genesis 2. So have a look, flick over the page. Genesis 1, God creates everything. Day after day we're told God looks at what he's created and we're told it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. We get to Genesis 2, we're told for the first time something is not good, which jumps out because it's stark to us because everything has been good previously and something's missing. Do you know what it is? It's women. Now the Bible's remarkably pro-women, despite what you might hear. So we're in verse 18, chapter 2 of Genesis. The Lord God said, uh, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Uh, The story goes on. Uh, and no suitable helper is found. So we read in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So God looks at his creation, and something's missing. Something's not good. So God creates a helper, a partner, a soulmate, not from one of the animals, but from a part of Adam himself. You see, his helper must be like 
him. And yet, as God takes a part of him to create a partner for him, he does not create another him. Let me say that again. As God takes a part of Adam to create a partner for Adam, he does not create another Adam. He creates a her. Similar, but different. A complement, not a copy. Friends, it's here we see God's second purpose for the flourishing of sexually intimate human relationships for marriage. It's the coming together of two people, male and female, who are the same but different and who complement one another. And according to the Bible's vision for marriage, it is only in a relationship of two who are the same but different that they can truly become one flesh. Which is why in verse 24, uh, the author of Genesis concludes, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. You need to know that this is the foundational description in the whole Bible uh, of what marriage is. A man leaves his family to start a new family with a wife or a woman and they become a new family unit. Now, that looks different in all different cultures, but they are naked, which means vulnerable before one another in every way, and in that context, they are fruitful and multiply. My brothers and sisters, here we see God's plan for the flourishing of people and for the continuation of people. This is God's vision for the flourishing of people in sexually intimate human relationships, in marriage. And and again, from the outset, same-sex marriage does not fit with this design. Same-sex marriage is not marriage as God defines it because it's not the coming together of two people who are the same but different. They're the same. They're not complements. They are copies. Here's what you have to know. Uh, At every single point that the Bible talks about sexuality and marriage and human flourishing, at every single point, the Bible is defending this vision. That's what it's doing. The Bible's defending this vision. At every point, any sexual behavior that humans can come up with in the Bible that threatens this vision for human flourishing, the Bible rejects as sin and rejects as a rebellion against God's good design. Now, please hear me carefully on this. Please hear me carefully on this. It is mistaken to think that God is against homosexuality or that God is against same-sex marriage. That is the wrong way to think. The biblical way to think is that God is against anything that threatens the flourishing of people and in God's purposes, people flourish as they create new families with a complement, not a copy, which is open to the blessing of children. So this is why in Leviticus 18 and 20, we read these extended lists in the Old Testament law about who God's people could not have sex with. Can I just be clear before I read them? These are the passages you don't read out in church often. You'll see, so you'll see why now. Uh, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. Don't have sex with your mother. Yep. 
Don't have sex with your sister. Yep. Don't have sex with your grandchildren. Yep. Don't have sex with your aunt. Don't have sex with a woman and then her daughter. Yeah. Don't have sex with your wife's sister. That's not helpful for family relationships. Don't have sex with your neighbor's wife. Don't have sex with a man uh, if you're a man. Don't have sex with an animal. You've got to see, the Bible's far less squeamish about these things than we are. But here's the point. These activities aren't sinful because they're distasteful to you. These activities aren't sinful because culturally they're not acceptable. No, some of them are culturally acceptable here and in other cultures. The Bible calls them sin. Why? Because they all fall short of God's purposes for people. And if we believe the Bible, they are not the relationships that will lead to the best of human flourishing. These sexual relationships, these sexual behaviours will not fulfil God's purposes for people in God's world. You won't be surprised to know that in the New Testament, Jesus confirms and defends the biblical vision laid out in Genesis. Matthew 19, our third reading, Jesus is being pushed by the Pharisees on his views on divorce. He says this, it's on the screen. Notice how he argues. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus, when pushed on a, uh, a differing view of sexuality and relationships, goes back to God's original design for the flourishing of relationships and confirms the vision for sexual intimacy from Genesis. Jesus critiques any departure from God's good design. Now, there is a word that the New Testament, New Testament uses for all such departures, and it's porneia. So in the New Testament, whenever you read the word porneia, it means sexual immorality in all its many and diverse forms. Now, can I say, it's the word from which we get the word pornography and all those related words. Pornography, can I say, is a great name for pornography. Because built into the name is a reminder that it is a departure from God's good design for sexual intimacy. Of course, the Apostle Paul addresses porneia in his letters. Why? To uphold both Jesus' view and the Old Testament's view for what makes for flourishing sexually intimate relationships. Paul confirms, affirms the Genesis view of marriage and he identified sexual immorality in his day for what it was. Now, please be clear, this is not a cultural argument from Paul Because Paul spoke into a context, both Greek and Roman, where many sexually immoral activities were actually accepted and celebrated. Now, this is a theological position for Paul. He knew his Lord, and he knew that God knew best for how people could flourish. But friends, you know, don't you, that there is a second vision, a new and developing vision, second vision for marriage that is around in our world at the moment. Uh, And in a world that has either forgotten about God or that has actively decided God does not exist, then his purposes, his word to us, and his vision for marriage are left by the curb. That's no surprise. It's exactly what you'd expect, seems to me. But you've got to know that something's going to take its place. Something's going to take the place of the biblical vision. We are humans, after all, and we're rational, after all. So if we're going to jettison the given story to us about marriage and intimacy and human flourishing, then we need to create a new one that makes sense of the choices we make, of the way we want to live. So, of course, such a story has evolved. And it is this, 
and it is very simple, and it is very powerful. Marriage is the appropriate expression of love. And maybe that even feels right to you. Let me say again, this is a very powerful narrative, but let's explore it a bit further. So in our romanticised and eroticised culture, it is affection that becomes the starting point for thinking about sex and marriage. If people love each other, they should be able to get married. Just to be clear, if that's your starting point, then same-sex marriage makes perfect sense. It does. But the logic of the thinking of the Bible is that as important as affection is, it is not the starting point for thinking about marriage. Neither is human love, for that matter, as important as that is. Rather, it is human flourishing, which captures and sweeps up affection and love, not as primary, but like sex, as another wonderful help for these new married families that have been created to survive. And the reason that this new view of marriage is, hard, is a hard thing to critique is because we are complicit in this new way of thinking. Love feels so right. And God is love. And love conquers all. And make love, not war. And all that. You see, in our culture, we've set love on such a high bar that we do not speak about, in fact, we almost can't conceive such a thing as inappropriate love. Even that concept seems to jar in our minds. Oh, if it's love, how can it be inappropriate? There's a great ad on TV right now for, what's that one where those people get married and they've never met? And there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a homosexual guy there who just says, love, it's just the most pure of emotion. He's got tears coming down. How could anyone stand in the way of that? I sit there and I think, oh, I, I'm with you, mate. And I think, no, no, I'm not. It's very powerful. Christians need to remember that there is such a thing as inappropriate love. In fact, in the Bible, you might be surprised to know that inappropriate love is, in essence, the thing that keeps all people from God. What am I talking about? I'm talking about idolatry. What's idolatry in the Bible? You know it's not bowing to statues of gold or wood. It is loving, seeking, serving something, anything, more than God. That's why in Colossians, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, that's porno, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. That's weird. How is greed idolatry? What's greed? It is an inappropriate hungering and love for something other than God. Now, just to be clear, I'm not sure that that person at work you speak to or your next-door neighbour who you speak to about this will understand this perspective about inappropriate love because it's a, posi it's a position you come to understand uh, from believing God's word and, and coming to understand the nature of sin and, and the nature of your own heart that beats within your breast. Or, or, so you know if you're a Christian here, if you're anything like me, that when you love Jesus, you know there is a part of you, a large part of you, that we, we wrestle with all the time. It's this human condition of wanting to love things other than Jesus, more than Jesus. It's there for all of us, right? But it's a position of faith that helps us understand what inappropriate love is. Your neighbour may not get this, but here's what your neighbour might understand. So you're speaking about 
same-sex marriage, uh, and it's generous and kind and a gracious conversation. And then what's thrown back at you is, look, how can you stand in the way of love? And, and you say, well, there is such a thing as inappropriate love. And they're all, really? Like what? All you need to do is say this. You say, well, like me sleeping with your wife. I just love her. No, it's true love. I've got to follow. I've got to be consistent to... He'll get that. He'll feel that. You see, that's not appropriate, right? Just because I might want to sleep with your wife doesn't mean I have the right to do that. And that doesn't mean it's the right expression of that emotion or desire I have. There is such a thing as inappropriate love. There's another thing that's happening in our culture, and it's this. Because we live in such a romanticised and eroticised culture, because affection and love become the starting point for thinking about sex and marriage, the other thing that has happened in Western culture uh, is that sex is now seen as the high point of relationships. Didn't used to be that. Marriage used to be seen as the high point of relationship. Now it's sex. Just read Cosmo or just the cover. Uh, and generally today, almost everyone would say, almost everyone you speak to, school, gate, work, whatever, is that sex, what's sex about? Sex is for pleasure in the context of affection. That's what sex is. That is the Western world's individualistic view of sex. Sex is for pleasure in the context of affection. The Bible's view is that no, sex is a gift for something beyond itself. Marriage. The Bible says, no, sex is an end in and of itself. Now, let me scare you even further. There's another shift going on that may not have hit you, but it's going to hit your children and start to hit your children. There's some younger people here who will get this. I was speaking to Tim Schooler, a youth pastor, about this. I said, Tim, I'm going to say on Sunday that for most people today, sex is for pleasure in the context of affection. Tim looked at me and said, he's working with a different generation, he said, no, it's not. I thought to myself, what? I said to him, what do you mean? Tim said, affection? Affection's not even on the radar anymore, Pete. <laughs> he's right. So what's happened now is things have moved on again, and now for a whole generation under most of us who are growing up in a hookup culture uh, with oral sex at parties, with friends with benefits, with a million Australians using Tinder, a million Australians using Tinder, affection is not even on the scene. Sex is for orgasm. And again, I've got to say, that makes sense. If your starting position is one of there is no God, there is no purpose, there is no hope, then why wouldn't you try to sleep with as many people as you can? I mean, affection might be nice, but if it's certainly not required, the point is, if you look at the sexual practices of Australians right now, friends, they make sense to me. Let me finish with a word on culture. You know, every culture on earth, and there are people here from different cultures, every culture on earth will have aspects of that culture that both align with a biblical world of view, and that will both depart from a biblical worldview. That's because every culture on, on earth is shaped by two realities. They are these. The first is what we call common grace, God's blessing to all people in all times of his wisdom stitched into the nature of things. So right now, all cultures know pretty much that protecting young children is the right thing to do. You don't need to convince people of that. Cultures get that. See, that's a result of God's common grace in this world. You don't need to explain to people, oh, it's not right to actually deliberately hurt children. The culture gets that. There's a second reality that shapes culture. It's this. It's the fallen state of the world we live in. Okay? Because of sin in our world and sin in our hearts, all people in all places at all times reject aspects of God's good created order for his world. Here's the thing. The things that are rejected 
and the things that are retained will change from culture to culture and, to our point, from time to time. So, for example, let me give you an example of this. We live in a time right now in the West, in in Australia, where uh, sexism is rightly seen for what it is. An inappropriate and offensive degradation of equal human beings, of women. Our culture, by and large, sees that right now for what it is. 70 years ago, it did not. 70 years ago in our culture in regard to sexism, uh, our culture was out of step with what the Bible said about men and women being made equal in the image of God. What's happened in the last 70 years? Our culture has come into a closer alignment with a biblical worldview. Another example. We live in a time right now where same-sex marriage is fast being seen by almost everyone as an appropriate expression of equality and love. Our culture believes it to be fine. But it didn't 70 years ago. 70 years ago, our culture in regard to same-sex relationships was more in step with what the Bible says about the nature of appropriate relationships. Now, just to be clear, this was almost entirely to do with a personal distaste for homosexuality and the power of a Christianized moral majority than it had anything to do with believers seeking to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was what it was. What's happened in the last 70 years? Uh, Same-sex relationships have further come into a disalignment with a biblical worldview. Brothers and sisters, what's the point? This happens all the time. Cultures change and shift and morph, sometimes towards God's vision for his world because of his common grace, and sometimes away because of the sinfulness of humanity. But the Bible doesn't move. God doesn't move. So in the Old Testament, God's described like this. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. Why? For he is not a man that he should change his mind. In the New Testament, God's described very similarly. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Brothers and sisters, here's the good news. (laughs) Jesus is not shocked by what's going on in this world. He knows it happens. He's seen every culture wax and wane with the wind. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, our hope is not in a culture that more and more reflects a biblical worldview. You'd be waiting a long time. It's actually not what you want anyway. Our hope is not in a government that's Christianized and moral. If that's your hope, you are hoping for way too little. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, isn't it? The King of the world and the Saviour of his people that he will continue to call to himself all who belong to him, heterosexual, homosexual, pansexual, married, single, men, women, people like me in my brokenness and sinfulness, people like you in your brokenness and sinfulness. Our hope is that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our hope is in the fact that even as our world changes around us, God does not And he has us, and he holds us, and he prepares us for every good work that we are to do for his glory. Even in a culture. Perhaps especially in a culture that does not know him, nor glorify him as God. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we 
we find it so hard to not be blown about by the winds of change. Prevailing cultural sentiment is such a powerful thing and it, is, it gets inside us and it changes the way we think and speak and raise our children. But the fact is, Father, it sinks deep because we don't know you and your word well enough. Will you forgive us? Will you give us a deep conviction that your ways are best, especially when we don't feel like they are? And will you help us be people who are gracious and kind and compassionate and loving as we set forth the truth of God plainly? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.